Hey everybody, Francesca here reminding you that I will be in Sacramento at the SAC Punchline on Sunday, March 17th at 7 p.m. with none other than Matt Lieb. That's right, we are co-headlining. It'll be super fun. It is St. Patrick's Day, so I guess we're all drinking, maybe? Anyway, get your tickets. There should be a link in this description, and I hope to see you there. Energy, Marianne Williamson, because it's all about that crystals, baby. So you, all of our energy is just going to come from rose quartz and uh, <laughs> it's super, renewable. Super renewable. Well, hello, hello, hello again, good people of the ether. Welcome to the Bituation Room podcast live stream. I am your host, Francesca Fiorentini. Woo! We are one week out from a Biden victory, a Trump non-concession, uh, and uh, I'm tired already. Are we done yet? Is it? No? Okay, cool, cool. Um, I'm so glad to have you here. I'm so glad you're here to dissect everything that's going on with us. We've got such a good show for you tonight. NATO Green is back in the house. Boop, boop, boop. Just kidding. Love NATO. So happy to have him. Excited to hear his thoughts on the election. Um, also, no big deal, but legendary black feminist scholar, activist, thinker. Uh, I am fangirling so hard right now. Barbara Smith is here, you guys. Um, and the reason we are late is because there is a storm over Albany. And it's not just because... Barbara is, uh, you know, just raining down fiery nuggets of wisdom. It's because there's an actual storm and <laughs> her internet has been interrupted and we might have to just get her on the phone. She's doing it old school and bring her on the phone. So I will call her in a little bit and hopefully the audio will be good enough and um, we'll dig into it. We're going to talk about what to do with all these races. You know what I mean? I mean, they got to go somewhere. Can they just go somewhere? Um, and uh, talking about identity politics, talking about the uh, the slogan defund the police and whether Jim Clyburn is right. And, and it's the reason that uh, Democrats lost House seats. Spoiler. No, it wasn't. I'm just going to go out and say that. Um, but hey, if you're watching right now on YouTube or Twitch, hit all the buttons, like this stream, share this stream, um, subscribe obviously to the channel, please, and turn on your notifications. You will get notified every time we go live. We will have bonus episodes coming up very, very soon. So you don't want to miss those. Uh, like this podcast or rate this podcast on YouTube if you're listening or no, that's what it, no, Rate this podcast on iTunes. I remember how to do this show. I totally remember. Give us five stars. I mean, maybe four because I bungled that. But no, give us five stars. Your reviews are so, so sweet. I read every single one of them. They make me feel whole and loved. And like we have a little space here in between comedy and politics that we can call our own a little nest, a franny nest. Okay. Um, and as always, you can support this show by tipping us at TBR-Live. That's TBR, not TDR. I did mess that up last week for all the Dragon Squad in the audience <laughs> and the show that I regularly do on Mondays with John Iderola. So TBR-Live on Venmo, TBR-Live on Cash App. The tips are so generous. Anyone who gives us 20 bucks or more, anyone who gives us anything, 
love you. Thank you. Even if it's a buck, two bucks, three bucks, nothing too small. Um, and for those who've given 20 bucks or more, special shout out. So George Brucato, Betsy Shock, Juan Vasquez, Richard Christian, Sarah Wooten, and Bob Mason. My God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It goes a long way. And yes, we are donating a portion of your tips um, to a different organization every single week. We donated to uh, the uh, the Movement Voter Project and their Georgia Fund. And now we are donating to a an organization that is registering Georgia voters by registration deadline, which is December 7th. We got two senators. We're trying to flip. I'm trying to flip it. New Georgia Project. They are registering new voters in Georgia, which, by the way, this week flipped and became blue. Just a little blue in a sea of red. It was done by the work of organizers and against every against traditional wisdom of what, you know, uh, paid consultants would tell you is possible in Georgia. But holy shit, they did it. That is the fucking story of this election, hands down. Thank you, Graph 1980. Yes. Yes. Uh, thank you for that dollar and that super chat. You guys can super chat whenever you goddamn want. You got to you know, fucking super chat. Um, If you guys haven't watched, News Broke came to an end, 10 episodes. We finished for this season. Watch our last piece uh, all about how the Democrats... Uh, need to take this opportunity to really deliver for the American people, because if not, we're going to have full-blown fascism on our hands very, very soon. 70 million people still voted for Trump somehow. Uh, it's like they really want another world war. You know, it's like they really, really want a third Reich or something, you know? So uh, we got to stop that. And the only way to do that is actually making good on all the promises uh, and actually delivering real change for the American people, uh, especially coming off of the back of a pandemic, a recession, the fact that Congress will not pass or the Senate will not pass another stimulus budget and another stimulus check or any assistance to any anyone actually struggling. Um, let's move into this, though. I, uh, I, I got to be honest with you. I have been I got a little sad today. I don't know if you guys read Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's interview in the New York Times like about a week ago, and I didn't read it. I was just sort of just really, really slammed with work, lots of writing, needing a effing break. And I read it today and it made me so sad. It made me so sad because basically, and we will talk about this with NATO and with Barbara later on, um, she's at her wits end trying to prove that progressive issues actually win elections. And at the end of it, she's basically like, the only reason I ran for re-election was to prove that I could still win. But I'm about 50-50 right now between running for higher office and just building a homestead. <laughs> and I was like, fuck. Damn, girl. Don't you realize we're all going to be on a homestead? We're like, we're all going to be a sister wife if we lose her, you know, I mean, like Amy Coney Barrett's already going to make us wear bonnets. Like, do you really need to move to a homestead? But the point is, is this is who we consider one of the fiercest persons out there, people out there, right? This is a, a fierce Congresswoman. And yet 
she is burnt out and she's burnt out of trying to pull her party to where it needs to be and trying to win and trying to stop fascism. And so it's like, if that's what AOC is going through, it doesn't bode well. It doesn't bode well that even the person who is arguably leading this fight feels so unsupported, not from us. I think, you know, we love her. We, we slide into her DMs all the time. You know what I'm saying? I do. But, you know, like, but from inside the party, uh, from inside the sort of backstabbiness, and and that's awful, right? And so it, it depressed the shit out of me, and also I got it, and I think, you know, uh, a lot of people do go through burnout. Organizers are burnt out all the time, and yet we somehow have to keep pushing. But if you feel like you keep on pushing the same issue all the time, as they say, like a Sisyphean task of just pushing that boulder up the hill only to have it roll back on you, and then people still want to talk about your clothing. I mean, that's the right wing, but then people want to you know, harp on her from the Democratic side. Like, at what point do you just call it quits? And so I get that. But then again, she is literally our only hope. Um, before I bitch any further, let me bring in my bitchin' buddy. Yeah, my bitchin' buddy. Sorry. <laughs> you guys are all my bitchin' buddies, too. Just kidding. Thank you, Chris Nesbitt. Uh, thank you, Chuck. Let me bring him in. He is a comedian. He is a labor organizer. He is my kindred spirit from the San Francisco Bay Area. Please welcome Nato Green. Hey, everybody. Hi, Nato. Hey. So I just I'm not actually that concerned about about AOC. Like like the, what she said about homesteading. That's an organizer trick. I'm an organizer and I know that trick. Like every fucking organizer is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to like I have said I've been I've been doing organizing for, you know, 25 years. And yeah. I have said many times like, oh, yeah, I would totally like if I could just have a house with a porch and an Adirondack chair, I would tap out. I would retire. <laughs> all I want, all it would take to get me out of the movement is a porch. Yeah, uh, right. And like a covered porch, like an, an outdoor fire pit. Fuck, yeah. bro. Like I'm, and then I'm, and then done. I'm done. But it's, it's a fake. It's, it's fake. It's not real. So it's you just think like, she's more of a threat? Like she's threatening us, so we'll be like, oh my god, you. Yeah, I don't. I like. I think that if that if if uh, if Joe Manchin or or Bill Maher hears her say that she's thinking about going to a homestead and it's like, sweet, if we fuck with her some more, she's going to end up on a homestead. Nah, it's not going like that. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, she's like Omar coming, yo. You know? No, she, she, you know, it's so funny because I, I I agree. I think you're calling her bluff and I would agree. It's like, girl, we've seen your Twitter. You're not going to back down from a fucking fight. You know? like, right. Like, <laughs> like, so, as much yeah. as she's going to threaten. No, you're, yes, it is. I, I, I feel like after having seen the way that like progressive and, you know, people of color and women of color specifically just like gave this victory to the Democrats. And then having that same day for like John Kasich to be like, well, the left cost, you know, cost Democrats the House. It's like that's got to fucking suck as a congressperson, as, as someone like her, you know. And, and, and yeah, totally. It definitely totally sucks. And uh, and, you know, and like they're already like I wish that the Democrats had the intelligence to wait to shit on her until Biden actually got inaugurated so that like because when Trump tries to coo, coo it to coo it out mm -hmm. they're going to need her they're going to need her to be like up on the barricades but you know I'm just 
I'm not like like when she said when she said that uh, about you know about about homesteading and hanging up the towel. Uh, it's like it's just it's such a like I like once you're an organizer, you're never fully out. You know what I mean? Like right. I stopped organizing for a few years to do comedy full time, and then like it just meant that I was like picking weird fights with contractors building houses in my neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like, God. like once you have organizer <laughs> skills, there was some contract where I was like, oh, this dude is not doing this with, with permits properly. I think and, I know who you're talking about. And <laughs> this, like some Irish contractor is like trying to work around the system and is taking up my parking space and they don't get his campaign pants on and I'm going after his permits. <laughs> like, like once you know how to do that, it never stops. You're never really out of it. You can say that you're out of it, but it's like you're going to be like uh, uh, Viggo Mortensen in that movie with with uh, was it what was it History of Violence where he was like the the former Irish mobster who you know suddenly revealed that he knew how to murder everyone in two seconds. That's uh, yes, yes. AOC or, will be just like that. Yeah, or like you're like the born identity. I never seen a born anything, but like. I know they never end. And I feel like AOC is like the born identity thing. Like she's always reactivating. Thank you so much for that super chat. Um, Nato, what are you bitching about though? Thank you for hearing mine. Yeah, I, I feel you. I'm with you. I, I see you as the kids say. Um, what I'm bitching about is like every election, there's this mad stampede to interpret the election in a way that's really dumb. Like every election like commentators are looking for some like grand historical meta narrative where they like way overstate like what the election means in like historic generational terms. You know, so like in 2008, they were like, Obama got elected. So now it's post-racial America. Remember that? Yeah. Ha, 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 psych, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then when Bush got, or uh, Trump got elected in 2016, there was the whole thing about like, Oh, this was about you know a racial backlash, and we now we need to go understand why white men are so into doing racism. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and so like like so now you know what I sort of like about this election is that the is that the data is more complicated, um, and so people yes. have had a hard time like finding their footing on the cheesy meta narrative. Um, but they're like way over determining the exit polls. So let me recap here real quick. What the what the, what the what is in the echo chamber? Uh, Trump won among white men and people making over a hundred thousand, but less than two hundred thousand, and Cubans and rural people and evangelicals. And Biden won among black people and people with college degrees and people making less than two hundred thousand or one hundred thousand, and unmarried women, but not white women, and also people under forty-five, because. Uh, but Trump also won people earning $100,000, but lost among people with college degrees. This means that Trump did well with people with more money than education. And Biden underperformed, by which we mean either that he did work worse in exit polls than pre-exit polls, which you might call entrance polls, uh, suggested <laughs> he might do, or that he also did worse relative to Clinton in 2016, which was a different candidate in a different time with a different electorate. And Trump gained ground relative to one of those things among people of color and especially among Latinos, but not Mexicans or Puerto Ricans, but yes, Cubans and Venezuelans and Nicaraguans, but also Latinos in rural areas in the Rio Grande, Grande Valley in Texas, but not in Arizona. 
And <laughs> it's like oh, it's open and shut, bro. Let's <laughs> and also Fox News had an exit poll that showed that 74% of Americans supported changing to a government-run health plan. 55% of Americans support stricter gun laws. 72% support a pathway to citizenship for illegal immigrants. 70% support increasing government spending on green, green energy. And 73% said America racism is a problem in policing. So as you can clearly see, the main lesson of this election is whatever bullshit I thought immediately before the election. Uh, and this election just justifies all this shit I was saying before. Yeah, the election is basically, I, I was right. All I was right. I told you so. Told, yeah, I told you so. Um, I had this line in Newsbrook, which is at least we can all agree we should push Nate Silver uh, and Nate other mafuck out to sea. Um, Nate Silver and Nate Cohen out to sea. That just like we can all agree on that, you know? Like uh, they should just be <sighs> goodbye. Here's, you know? uh, yeah, I mean, like white liberals treat Nate Silver like he's the fucking oracle at Delphi. To, that's a that's an ancient Greek mythology reference for the kids out there. Um, uh, and Nate, the the thing that bugs me about Nate Silver is that he like by expressing his opinions in the form of probabilities, he never has to be wrong. Right. Yes. <laughs> he's just like he's, he gets. We all just did that. We he, never took stances. We just gave it a probability of how much yeah. we believe what we just said. Brilliant. Yeah, it's it's such a cheat, and it, and it's like and when he when he when his probabilities are wrong, when the unlikely thing happens, it's not because he was wrong. It's because other people who were pollsters that provided the inputs to the data that he was using, they were wrong and it's their fault. It's like, dude, just have a fucking opinion and stand behind it. <laughs> Agreed. Um, well, let's move right into the week. Sorry, guys, that, we're, that we're looking drink. back. NATO's finished his drink. Damn, it's been that kind of a night. All right, you guys, let's let's look back at what happened this week. This is the week where. Mm. Only a few things happened this week. Obviously, crazy new rise in COVID cases. Uh, no new stimulus package. But the most important thing about this week is that this was the week where the Trump train ran out of track. Georgia was called for Biden, as was Nevada. China recognized Biden as having uh, as being the president elect, as have other allies. Um, the only people who haven't recognized Biden is uh, President Vladimir Putin of Russia, Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil and the corpse of Pinochet. And honestly, as soon as they do, I mean, I think Pinochet will be first, probably. Um, the, the honestly, let's let's reveal the only thing more. Pathetic. American politics have moved so far to the right that Pinochet is a swing voter now. Uh, yeah, CNN's going to bring up Pinochet to give his opinion about, uh, you know, where the Democratic Party should should lead from. Kids, kids, Augusto Pinochet was a Chilean general who led a coup in 1973. And Francesca and I are staying hell of relevant by dusting off jokes about military leaders in South America in the 70s. What's up? What up? What up, Twitch? Uh, <laughs> the only thing more pathetic than a dumb cartoon villain is the dumb cartoon villain who can't accept defeat. You know, like the part in Roadrunner uh, and Wile E. Coyote where like Wile E. Coyote is in midair, but he's like still laughing as if he won. And he doesn't realize he's about to fall. Like, this is the moment we're in with the Trump administration. It's super embarrassing. Meanwhile, Biden is like porky pig trying to end the episode. Like, that's all, folks. 
Also, because he's got a stutter. <laughs> it's, it's hard to. It's always in this moment, like where where Trump is refusing to concede defeat and also raising money on a fake like defense plan or whatever, uh, a recount fund. It's hard to figure out if Trump is the smartest person ever or the dumbest person ever, or somehow both at the same time. It's yeah. like, it's like, you know, you, you know, the thing of like how, uh, how like, like if you put monkeys in a room with, uh, with typewriters, eventually just randomly, they will type out all the works of Shakespeare. Trump <laughs> is like that, but only about like a, a new grift. You know what I mean? Like, like, he is just like like all id like like this whole thing about voter fraud and not conceding is because he's too much of a fucking narcissistic baby to be able to admit that he lost and people don't like him but then yeah. he also is like oh this is a way that i could bilk my donors for more money for yeah. more like porcelain gold toilets or whatever for my mansions he's he's raising money to NATO was saying this, but he's raising money for a recount. But unless you give something like $6,000, it won't actually go to any recount money. Um, it's going to a new Trump super PAC. Um, he is so tacky. He's grifting off his own loss. This is like if the Tampa Bay Rays sold World Series loser merch. Like, ah, get it while it's hot. Um, it's such a specific amount of money, too. Like the rule is like you have to give more than $8,333 for the money to help the recount fund. So like, sorry, fucking Sheldon Adelson, you only give $8,331. So like, it's like, like it's such a weird rule that it, that it has well, to be like- Supporters are giving more than $6,000, I assume. But again, if they're making more than 100,000, less than 200,000, maybe that is a sweet spot or whatever right. you laid out. Um, if you guys have, haven't been following, there's about a dozen lawsuits. Most of them have been thrown out. Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, and Georgia. He's trying to stop counting mail-in ballots, stop counting absentee ballots, stop counting regular ballots, asking for MAGA observers, and also a lawsuit over a Sharpies in Arizona, which, surprise, was also based on a lie completely. Um, Every you, are you following the reporters that are like live tweeting the law, the litigation? My favorite <laughs> one was the reporter, like one of the lawsuits alleged that the form of voter fraud was that there was someone else, another person at the polling place was voting and was wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt and they were large. It was a bit, just like a big guy. And they were like, and then I felt threatened. I, and then I was scared. I saw a big black guy and I was scared. And so that's definitely voter that's fraud. voter intimidation right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big black men are voting. I feel threatened. My God. Um, obviously, they're imploding. It makes sense that these these uh, you know lawsuits are imploding because the lead lawyer is still Rudy Giuliani, who is both bad at his job and completely out of ideas. Now he's just reading the screenplay to Liar Liar on Fox News. He's just like the pen is blue. Hunter Biden said it was black. The pen is blue. I had that. I had that uh, impersonation better earlier. The pen, the the pen is blue. I can't. Mm. <laughs> so good earlier. I need a drink. Mm. NATO, you want to take the next story? Sure. This is the week where 130 Secret Service agents are isolating due to COVID exposure at an event held at the White House by Trump, aka the Super Spreader in Chief. 
It's really a make America intubated again kind of moment. The Secret Service were asked to comment on the exposure to which the agency's press secretary said, shh, it's a secret. It's right there in the name. It's a secret. <laughs> Sorry. Amazing. Um, <laughs> this was the week where we say cry more Nazis as Trump supporters held a march in D.C. over the weekend dubbed the Million MAGA March without with a turnout of about 12,000 people. And that's okay because Trump voters are never good at numbers. It's a few thousand short of a million. Um, they're never good at numbers, reality, or the female orgasm. So makes sense. Um, one attendee, and this is from The Guardian, Craig Johnson, who had driven 14 hours from Florida, was giving out dollar bills featuring a photo of Melania Trump. Uh, and he said, quote, I want this nightmare to end, he told The Guardian. I haven't slept much since the election because I'm sad that Donald Trump is not our president. He's going to be our president, though. What? <laughs> like, that is next level delusion. And I'm pretty sure later that day he got into an argument with a gas station attendant for not accepting his Melania dollars. You know, like, oh, come on. She's a first lady. She's going to be. I mean, she's not yet. Uh, white nationalists also made a showing to whine about the presidential election, loudly proclaiming they are proud boys, but they don't know how to put on their big boy pants and suck up defeat. Uh, I don't know how to tell these guys that whiteness is still going to exist after Donald Trump. Like Trump may have lost, but mayonnaise, Frisbee golf, cargo shorts, they're all still in the game. Okay. No one is coming for your lazy boy chairs or the Sundance film festival. It Calm down. What listening to you, it, it made me imagine uh, we should write this, Francesca, like a like a update of uh, thanks, Trev O'Brien. Uh, <laughs> I am a cool co-host. Um, uh, we should write an update of uh, Romeo and Juliet about like a like a illicit romance between like a like a DSA organizer and a Proud Boy. Um, oh, I love that. <laughs> Um, where they like they like accidentally lock eyes across a sea of tear gas in the middle of a like a antifa versus you know proud boy melee and then it's love at first sight and they have to have a, a forbidden forbidden passion. Um, the thing about this moment, like it's really hard to figure out how to feel right now. Um, uh, you know where it's like like watching. You know there was twelve thousand. Proud Boys, like armed dicks in D.C. this week or, or yesterday. I, apparently they were like charging around D.C. stabbing people. Uh, and it's like, it, like I, you know, obviously it's horrible that people got stabbed, but it sort, it sort of feels like it could go either way. Like it's either like this could be like we could be literally on the verge of full-blown fascism and a successful coup and actual death squads and, and exterminations or like complete absurdity and just like they become you know some like embarrassing like joke thing yeah. like you know the like i don't know uh bruce willis's music career i don't know like something just totally like <laughs> not re valid uh and so and it could go it could go either way and so it's like hard like you want to you want to ridicule it but it's also terrifying and you want to be terrified but it's also ridiculous yeah and I just wonder if, like, if my great grandparents, as they were fleeing 
fleeing marauding Cossacks in the Ukraine who were about to exterminate their villages as the Cossacks were like riding into the town about to murder all the Jews and pile them into mass graves were like, look at their stupid fucking hats though. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's that's how i feel like genocide in america started in the first place it was like pilgrims showed up with weird ass buckles and like native americans were like (laughs) 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 and like you know but it is an interesting moment because you know half the takes you see on twitter or in any kind of circles or anyone you're talking to is like holy shit, this might be a real coup. Trump is reorganizing the entire Department of Defense. He's appointing loyalists. He's firing people who like don't want to declare martial law on his own people. And then half of Twitter and other people are like, nah, they're clowns. Stop. Let's just treat them like clowns. And I am of two minds because I kind of believe that we should have always treated Trump like the clown he is and never have taken him seriously, i.e. never give him that much airtime always keep him in the the comedy section, the entertainment section of every news organization as an aside. Oh, BT dubs. Trump is like trying to run for president. Anyway, back to real politicians, you know, that kind of thing. Would you be surprised if like come the day after inauguration, Trump, Trump ripped his own face off and it was Sasha Baron Cohen? Not in the least. No, not at all. And that would make this, I would love that. I would be, I'd be mad, but it would be the most incredible prank ever pulled. And it did teach us a lot about our country. So I'd mostly be relieved. I mean, Cohen is king. Obviously I'm happy to, I'm happy to have it all be a prank. Um, All right. Last, last segment. You guys, this was a week where the blame game as we talked about earlier, continued within the Democratic Party for losing House seats. The Democratic Party is basically a child caught in the middle of a very bad marriage. On the one side, former Republican John Kasich, the abusive deadbeat stepdad, and on the other, a working power mom who will give you Medicare for all, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. John Kasich has claimed with no evidence that the left lost Democrats' House seats. And Representative Hakeem Jeffries said on a call, quote, do we want to win? Do we want to govern? Or do we want to be internet celebrities? <laughs> totally. It's a clear shot at AOC. And honestly, he's right. I mean, when's the last time we saw a celebrity win an election? Or like govern, you know? Not in my lifetime. Not in my lifetime. Motherfucker. Dude, TikTok stars are doing more to support MAGA and MAGA people than the Democratic Party is. Like K-pop fans are doing more so y'all can shut the fuck up so uh aoc just turned 31 and so francesca inspired uh by your boyfriend i checked in with google autocomplete um (laughs) (laughs) and um and so i typed in to google millennials kill and according to Google Auto- Autocomplete, the, uh, the the first options that came up were mil- that millennials killed mayonnaise, capitalism, marriage, power lunches, cereal, fabric softener, and top sheets. And now Ooh. A- AOC is leading the millennials to kill the Democratic National Committee. And I am here for it. Um, <laughs> what other precious institution will millennials stop at? 
They're, they're they can't be stopped. Dagwood they comic strips. They're just so hungry for their avocado toast, and their their need to survive a climate apocalypse. I just they won't stop. <laughs> Although I will say, dude, you kill the top sheet, I'll kill you. Mm. Fuck that, dude. You need a top sheet. Everybody in the comments, are we pro top sheet or not? Because it's disgusting to put your your thighs up all on the duvet. Ew. You're going to sweat up all on that duvet? No. Francesca, be careful. You're revealing your age. You're obviously not a millennial. Bish, if that makes me a boomer, I don't even care. I'm, I guess, but it, maybe I am. I guess, can people not afford top sheets anymore? Is this like... Uh, I know people, I know I, in the UK, it's like, there is no such thing as a top sheet, which makes sense. Look at their teeth. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Ulysses on YouTube says, you're right, Miss Fiorentini. Thank you. Unless the Democrats can address the situation that we're in, it will never go back to the way it was two years ago. My God. And we're going to be talking later in the show about our dream picks for a Biden administration. Yes, some names have been floated already. We're going to talk about those names a little bit, but mostly NATO and I are going to give you our picks for who we think the Biden administration should uh, should select. They're going to be good. Stick around. Um, the top sheet question has really polarized our fans. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you know, like, like our fans are more divided on the question of top sheets than they were on Bernie versus Warren. <laughs> we we haven't had a full discussion about Bernie versus Warren yet, but I plan to. In fact, once Biden is in office, that's the first episode I'm going to do. We need a full postmortem on the Warren campaign, please. Um, the difference between Ber Nixon and Trump was that Nixon tried to cover up his corruption. Trump was Trump just points fingers and accuses the opposition of worse. Franz Mayer, thank you for that super chat. You're right. I mean, this administration is the biggest projection. Everything is a projection. It's like just watching someone trapped. It's like watching a rat trapped in a hall of mirrors. Like, you know, you're the rat. No, you. Oh, my goodness. Like, that's what this is. Everything they say is a projection. Uh, they probably have a pizzeria where there are people being held against their will. Who knows? The pedophiles always are the ones to call other people pedophiles. Don't you forget it. Um, all right. I'm going to move on to our, our, our big segment, our main segment here, the sitch for the week. Barbara Smith is joining us. If I can get her on the phone, y'all are going to have to be patient because, uh, you know, this is the way things are working. She's got a, she's got a, uh, a storm. There's a storm. I'm going to give, give her a proper intro. She's an author, activist, and independent scholar who has played a groundbreaking role in opening up a national, cultural, and political dialogue about the intersections of race, class, sexuality, and gender. She's been a politically, politically active in many movements for social justice since the 1960s. She was a co-founder of the Com Combaki or Combi River Collective. I'm trying to say that right. Combi River Collective and of Kitchen Table Women of Color Press. Please welcome Barbara Smith. Barbara. Hi, Francesca. Hi. Barbara, thank you so much for being here with us. And I apologize uh, that the winds of change are blowing over your home. <laughs> I think it's a good sign, maybe. Barbara, you have written a lot lately. And uh, you were also a surrogate for Bernie Sanders This in the primary. Um, you 
have remained and your writing has remained relevant for so many decades. And I am, like I was saying earlier, I'm a huge fan, like uh, the Combi River Collective and the state, your statement, like politicize me, radicalize me in college. I'm definitely one of those feminist nerds and especially uh, a product of the third wave feminist movement and feminists of color that, that you pioneered. So thank you for being here. And thank you for knowing all about that. I'm really glad to be with you. Um, so just first off on the election, I think something we've all been trying to get our minds around is still after all of this time, after all the blunders, after the pandemic being completely bungled, 250,000 people dead and climbing, 70 million people still voted for Trump. Um, and we've got a lot of work to do rooting out white supremacy in this country and racism. And you recently wrote in The Nation about a potential way to solve, a potential way to actually uproot white supremacy, which is some kind of martial plan to eradicate white supremacy. And you wrote, what if there were uh, a team of experts with the most detailed knowledge of how white supremacy in tandem with racial capitalism operates. And uh, we launched a Marshall Plan on on the grand scale to eliminate it. And you called it the ha the Hamer uh, the Hamer Baker Plan after Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker. Tell me about this plan. NATO and I want to hear about it. Well, uh, it's uh, not. Uh, unfortunately, it's not being implemented. I don't anticipate that it will be soon, uh, given, given the outcome of the election. Not that Trump would have uh, uh, implemented it, but yeah, it's um, an idea. It's a dream. Yeah. Because I actually feel like white supremacy could be eradicated if, number one, people acknowledge that it actually existed. Most people just can't even articulate and say those words white supremacy because they think you're talking bad about them. Right. So first of all, we have to acknowledge that it does exist. And then we would need to do some real popular education. So uh, particularly for the 70 plus million <laughs> who voted for uh, the current person uh, who's in the White House. But after doing that, uh, I think that we could in a very strategic way get to a lot of the roots of what is going on and why this country 400 plus years later is still just so mired in racism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I love that you are actually laying out a vision because I feel like some, when it comes to white supremacy, so many of us kind of, I think throw up our hands because it's so frustrating and we don't understand it that like actually having a vision like a Marshall Plan, re, you know, which rebuilt Europe during after World War II, but applying that to us, it's like this is all the healing and building work that this country's never been through when it comes to structural racism. It's so true. And like other countries that have had these kinds of really horrific uh, human rights debacles. I'm thinking about uh, Germany after World War II, Rwanda, South Africa. There are lots of places in the uh, world where there have been really, really awful things going on, atrocities. Yeah. And yet, they, uh, because they acknowledge that something horrible happened, then they begin to build. And there's something you know that we're familiar with called truth 
and reconciliation process. They did that in South Africa. They've done versions of that in other countries. The United States needs that. We really need that because we never really face what those the, the opening chapters, what those opening chapters uh, brought to us, the genocide of indigenous people and the enslavement of Africans, that's a hell of a way to start. <laughs> and we're still dealing with that. We're still dealing with that. It's a hell of a way to start is my favorite characterization of, of, of our, yes, our settler colonial country. Um, NATO? Yeah, so, the, I mean, you, you said that you, 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 the essay is called How to Dismantle White Supremacy, and, and you said that you thought that it was actually possible to dismantle white supremacy uh, if people acknowledged its existence. And uh, knowing what you know about the brutality of white supremacy, you, like it, it seems incredibly optimistic that you think that dismantling is even something that is like imaginable. Like, are you high? Like, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, aim lower. Come on, you know, like. Like, I think what, that's a yes. Like so, you know, like like most like mo there's a lot of liberals who are still at the celebrating diversity phase, and you're already jumping from celebrating diversity to dismantling white supremacy. That's a big jump. How do you how do you get there? Knowing what you know, how do you get there? One of the things about that article is that I feel like if you throw out of vision, if you say that you want something to be like and throw it out there. Then the wheels start turning, at least in some people's heads, and say, oh, yeah, we actually could do something about that. But as long as we turn our back to reality and act like that's just the way it is, it's all baked in. You know, we started with enslavement, and now we have uh, mass incarceration, and that's just the way it is. I don't think it has to be that way. It's really, uh, the articles uh, are really interventions for justice, is to get people to think differently. And also not to just talk about diversity and, uh, you know, like r racial uh, discrimination and implicit bias and white fragility, all the things that people talk about and talk about a lot. Uh, I wanted to go in another direction. I wanted to talk about what is actually, what is actually happening here, which the statistics absolutely prove. You can look at virtually any statistic, and if you look at the racial impact or you look at how that uh, statistic is being played out in communities of color, you will see that bad things are happening, things that shouldn't be happening. But like the fact that black women die in childbirth at three times the rate as white women. Right. Yeah. And, and, and Barbara, just for, for our listeners who may not completely understand, sort of understand what, what, what you're, all the, the wisdom that you're laying down, could you sort of walk us through like, why you think it's valuable to talk about systemic white supremacy rather than like racism or some other uh, lens that people might want to use? Uh, sure. Um, the thing about using the term white supremacy is that all of inherent is it, in it is this reality of power. White supremacy is an engine that runs our nation. Uh, I think it was Trevor Noah who was talking about racism, and he said racism is like the corn syrup of U.S. society because it's in everything. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that is a, I'm sorry, that's a really good line. It's like racism is like corn syrup for the United States because it's in everything. It absolutely is in everything. 
That reminds me, I have to pick out my pecan pie recipe. A good use of actual corn syrup, yes. But in any event, um, if we talk about uh, institutionalized white supremacy and also uh, either systemic white supremacy, we get to the power base of why it continues to thrive. It benefits certain people. It doesn't benefit all white people the same because we have white people who are in the bottom 99%. And we have that top 1%. Uh, white supremacy and capitalism are like conjoined twins. They're mm-hmm. just, and, and they're not very, they're very, not very pretty. <laughs> no, it's a very, very much a, very much an X Files episode. White supremacy, exactly. capitalism are just like one of those gross. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just like right cheek and jowl with each other. So, um, if, you know, if, that, if that's the case, then, you know, like we really need to look at what is this system serving? What is the system serving? White supremacy serves some really negative purposes, and it's really good for certain people who have a lot of uh, privilege. Yeah, I mean, one thing I think that has been stumping, and we don't have to spend that much time on it, but there's always this like, well, Trump increased his voters of color, you know, um, you know, Latino voters or or African American voters, like, yeah, but by still very minimal margins. But I think white supremacy allows us to see the ways that it's not necessarily just white people who are buying into a system of hierarchy, racial hierarchy, and a lot of times minority communities and immigrant communities especially will be given their sort of citizenship cards and their whiteness cards when if and when they throw their own communities under the bus and especially if they throw the african-american community under the bus um it's sort of it's a it's an all-encompassing system not just a you know, I think racism is so individualized. It becomes a like, well, you're you can't be racist because you are, you know, Latino or you're Asian, and it's like, mm, not true. It, we all participate in that in the system of white supremacy. Um, but I wanted to just pivot a little bit because um, you your claim to claim to fame, claim to fame, your work essentially helped coin the term identity politics in the late seventies and eighties. And you've I, you've explained it as um, especially originating from a black feminist and a queer feminist perspective as the right to formulate a political ge- agenda based upon the material conditions that we face as a result of race, class, gender, and sexuality. And then you write, unfortunately, the term has been maligned and distorted ever since. Um, so what do people get wrong about identity politics, uh, in your opinion, I guess, and what are the different ways we get it wrong? And follow-up question, whenever someone says identity politics, do you get $5? No, 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 I don't, but you can send me, you can send me the $5 now. In fact, I think both of you have said the word, so, uh, you know. I'll and you can put it in the mail, okay? Okay. In any event, um, the, uh, the Comedy River Collective that you've already uh, uh, really uh, mentioned in such a terrific way, Francesca, we were a group of black feminists organizing, doing black feminist organizing in the 1970s in Boston. And we wrote something called the Comedy River Collective Statement, which people are still reading to this day. We're still using this to this day because... What we talked about was all those systems of oppression, racism, 
patriarchy. We didn't even have the word heterosexism at that mm. time mm. or homophobia. Those, those words didn't exist, but we still talked about how we needed to fight the, 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 that system. And then, of course, our gender oppression or sexism. Um, and class, I think I forgot class in that big four. But the thing is that we said, that the, whole, the reason we said identity politics is because as black women, we didn't have any place politically to be. Mm. All the women were white and all the blacks were men, but some of us are brave. That's the title of a book. It's my book, actually. And <laughs> because, because of the fact that black women were erased and marginalized in both racial context, particularly racial political context, like the black uh, liberation, black nationalism, black power movement, and also we were raised within the white mainstream women's movement, we said we've got to have something for ourselves. We've got to do work out of our actual lived experiences of being simultaneously women, black, queer, and working class. We need to have that. And that's what identity politics meant, that we're going to make politics and create political agendas out of our lived experiences as black women. And from that day to this, at least uh, pretty soon, people have distorted it into the ground. And what they think it is is saying, I have all these multiple oppressed identities. I'm superior to you, and I have no interest in anything that's bothering you. Mm. So the, the working class white man who lost his job and doesn't know how he's going to keep a roof over his family's head, the denatured, the you know, like inaccurate version of, of, of uh, identity politics would not care about that guy. Right. But that's not what Kavanaugh was saying. That's not what we were saying. We care about everyone who is uh, facing, you know, this power structure of oppression. Uh, so what you're saying, Barbara, is that, that, that when you talk about identity politics, uh, it's not, it hasn't been your experience that like you experienced racism on Monday and sexism on Tuesday and class exploitation on, on Wednesday and, and, and heterosexism on Thursday, that that's not how you live your life? Uh, yes. And that's a perfect way to explain that. <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, the, the hostility toward it, uh, some of it is that if you have these multiple oppressed identities, you have no rights. And if you say that identity politics is important, then we get upset. And I'm talking about the, the powerful and the conservative and, and the white-minded. They get upset because of the fact that they don't want those of us who are like down below and marginalized. They don't want us to be asserting anything. But the, the fact that we actually were committed to working in coalition with all different kinds of people, that has gotten lost. Uh, and most people, I think, who use the term identity politics, they've never heard of the Carnegie River Collection. It's not so uh, technical that you couldn't put those two words together just yourself. And that's how I think that all got rolling. So a lot of people get it wrong. Yeah. People on the left get it wrong. People on the center get it wrong. People on the right get it wrong. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that when I see it getting, people getting it wrong, it's either that they think it's exclusionary. Um, and I think what you're speaking to is that that's exactly what it was trying to not do. That's the point of it is that it, because when you look at the United States from, or any sort of systems of oppression really from the black woman perspective, that 
you're talking about these intersections of patriarchy and uh, white supremacy and capitalism all at once. Um, but I think that it has been misinterpreted as being sort of exclusionary. Like you're exa- like, if you don't check these boxes, then somehow you're not included in this struggle when in fact it's no, if you actually look at the struggle from the people who are most impacted, you're going to naturally be including the rest of folks who, um, who are also oppressed at those different, po- you know, pain, not pain points, but those different points of, of you know, intersecting oppression. Um, I guess the other question I have, and I think a lot of people are talking about, you know, right now is, is to what extent is identity politics only about representation? And will representation naturally mean that the politics that the, you know, that that anti-capitalist, that, you know, anti-imperialist politics, will that always follow because I think what we're seeing now very much is a a lot of representation and sometimes a little bit of politics what what, what are your thoughts on that well I think that rep- representation is a dead end our representational politics that's a dead end because it doesn't say anything about what your values are what your priorities are it's just it's your uh, quarter phrase not mine black faces in high places and we see where that has gotten us in some cases. You talk about how uh, anyone could actually be racist. I'm not sure I agree with that. But if there was someone who might qualify, I would look directly at Clarence Thomas. Mm. He's a perfect example of mm-hmm. a black face, a black face <laughs> at a high place who means the rest of us, no good. Yeah. No good. All of us. You know, he is not about that. He's about uh, keeping a status quo that in reality, I don't know that it's serving him that well if he's driving down, you know, a, a country road one night in a car by himself. They don't know who Clarence Thomas is. You see what I'm saying? Yes. It could be dangerous. Yeah. yeah. It could be dangerous, you know? But the, and, I, and, and certainly in an encounter with the police in daylight in an urban era, era, if they didn't know, oh, that, that's just Clarence Thomas. He would for, he'd yeah. probably forgive him. He'd, he'd be fine. Well, you can do that. Well, I, I better not say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, now you don't usually do forgiveness from the cemetery, okay? So, mm, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. No, it's maybe not. Black people are at risk. You know, we are very high risk of violence, particularly police brutality, vigilante violence, etc. It's nothing to play with. I yeah. joke about, but the yeah. thing is, as I as I said. You know, someone like Clarence Thomas is a perfect example of a black face in a high place that doesn't really get us anywhere. I think that those of us who are marginalized, we look for any evidence that we matter. And that's why the slogan is Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Because there's so many inputs on a daily basis that tell us, you, you don't really count for anything. And we're going to prove it. You know, I'm on Aubrey. That's a perfect example. Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. These are perfect examples of some white people deciding these people's lives do not matter. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's serious and it's challenging, but that's what the work is. I'm so glad we're in it together. Yeah. Um, so the the Kamahee River Collective statement says that when black women are free, everyone is free. And, you know, it's, it's in, in the last many months, um, in the wake of the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor uh, and Ahmed Arbery murders, uh, you know, this, I, I think I saw something that like 10% of Americans participated in Black Lives Matter March. 
marches, which is incredible. But I feel I feel like there's also like a lot of um, you know well-meaning white folks who participate in that stuff sort of out of a, in a sense of guilt, kind of like that this is a you know that that what the violence that has been done and the oppression that's been done to black people is 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 a moral abomination which it is and it's upsetting uh and we have compassion and empathy which which we do and should but it sounds like what you're saying also is that like being in solidarity with the liberation of working class and poor black women isn't just about feeling bad about about it or like compassion but it's also like in you know it's it that that's also about everyone's liberation yeah. um could you could you did I did I say it right and uh, and can you explain that more? Um, I, I hope so. <laughs> um, I think what you're talking about, what we're talking about, is solidarity. You know, how do you live out solidarity across differences, across demographic differences? And there are people who do that. You know, they've written books about it. That's how much they know about it. They can actually write a book about how do you do solidarity when you have positions or, or uh, demographic identities that put you in a position of privilege. What do you do with that? And yes, I, I agree with how you said it, Leo, uh, that because uh, women of color, not just black women, because women of color, queer women, working class and poor women, trans women, because we experience so much coming at us that is negative, from systemic oppression, if we could deal with all those systems of oppression, everybody else would also benefit. Right. That's been true, I think, or even historically. People's lives improved because of something called the Civil Rights Movement. For one thing, they weren't living in a racist nightmare of uh, constant violence and lynching. Not that that has ended completely, but people don't, don't really understand how bad it was uh, the civil rights era. Yeah. You know, and, and just on that, you know, there was one candidate who did a very good job of tackling the interlocking systems of oppression. And I think, you know, was did not hold back, uh, you know, when it was time to sort of play politics. He did not. Um, he was not. He never groomed his message to be more palatable for corporate interests. And, and that it was, was Jesse the Body Ventura. Yes, and it was Jesse Ventura, hero, hashtag goals. Um, no, it was Bernie Sanders. And you, you know, you endorsed Bernie Sanders. You were a surrogate for him. And I was like so heartened when I saw that. Um, and and I wonder what kind of pushback you might have gotten um, from other folks about that endorsement, about your support, and also why you did support the old white guy <laughs> over, um, you know, someone like, Kamala or someone like Elizabeth Warren or, you know, that, you know, the other, the others in the race. I actually got no pushback at all. <laughs> most of uh, people, most of the people I would be talking to on a re regular daily basis, they supported Bernie too. So I did not have the experience of people asking me, asking me, why in the world are you supporting Bernie? Because they supported him as well. Right. Um, it's not that I didn't see anything that was negative about, but it wasn't aimed at me personally. I just never forget when is it Jason uh, Johnson who uh, referred Oof. to Deanna Joy Gray and the rest of us black women who supported Bernie as being on the island or from the island of misfit black girl. Yeah. 
Mr. Black Girl. Yeah, we had fun with that, I have to say. The night that that broke, you know, I was on, I was burning up Twitter and using the uh, little uh, palm tree, <laughs> the palm tree uh, emoji. Oh, yeah, that was, and, you and broke that emoji. Asking, yeah, and people were asking, you know, is it, is it, uh, was it possible to uh, get a ticket to the island of, of uh, Mr. Black Girl? <laughs> they wanted to be with us. They really wanted to be with hmm. us, you know? And they talk, uh, we also talked about who couldn't, we would not be allowed on the island, so we were happy. But it was <laughs> that, that that pushback was never never against me personally. And also, to be perfectly honest, you talked about how Bernie didn't pull any punches and how uh, he didn't uh, uh, offer uh, fall back on a corporate uh, message. His issue, his um, communication around race still left something to be desired in this 2020 cycle in this particular presidential cycle. Yeah. And we worked with him on that. We actually worked with him on that. But by the time we were having those discussions, he was getting very, very close to the end of the primary process. So yeah. it's not like he did it perfectly, but his perspectives and his priorities for living in a society where people have their needs met, that's a class perspective, that not just rich people deserve to have health care. Not just rich people uh, deserve to have a living wage. He, he was right in the sense that he understood that that kind of agenda was going to positively affect all of us. And since people of color are disproportionately uh, poor, marginalized, don't have health care, etc. But the messaging could have been better. And as I said, we worked, on, uh, worked with him on that. <sighs> uh, what a should it could have. I'm like, oh, I, we only had a little bit more time and fewer... Um, you know, uh, moderates who just collapsed into one big pile of Biden. But hey, look, this is what we've got now. I I want to ask a question because it's woo, sort of- Buttigieg train. Woo woo. Clobmentum. Clob clobmentum. It's clobmentum. How dare you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> one more question, Barbara, for me, and I know it's something we sort of touched on, but you know. In this postmortem around the Democratic Party, a lot of hand-wringing about why the Democrats lost the House and folks like Representative Jim Clyburn are saying that it was the defund the police message that came out of, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement that have scared away voters from the Democratic Party. Your thoughts on that and your response? I think it's absurd. It's been really interesting to see how the outcome of this election, how it's being talked about by uh, mainstream uh, players. I just think it's ridiculous to say that uh, the reason that certain people lost uh, down-ballot races, particularly, I think, members of Congress, but some of the people who ran for Senate, too, is because of uh, the, the uh, demand to defund uh, the police. As I said, I find it absurd. You were talking about AOC earlier, who continues to uh, carry that banner for a humane society and a society where people, uh, everyone's needs are met, not just some people, but all of us. Uh, I think it is uh, really absurd. Uh, my understanding is that the uh, people who ran for Congress in uh, swing districts who came out in support of Medicare for All, all of them won their their house seats. So that says something. And one last thing I want to say about this thing of defunding the police. Uh, defunding the police is no more 
radical than demolishing segregation in the 20th century or abolishing slavery in the 19th. Mm. When, when, the, when uh, history moves forward, when we look back on this, you will say, yeah, that was when people started talking about how we need to have public safety department, uh, public safety officers, as opposed to people who act like marauding, marauding gangs in poor communities of color. Right. So I just see defending, I see, I see defending the police as being in a, on a continuum of us fighting for our rights. Especially when no one asked if uh, black communities wanted billions of dollars put to more policing. Like no vote. There was no vote <laughs> on that. You know, <laughs> like the, the prison industrial complex uh, has just been steadily ballooning and no one's had a say in that. So what I am, I am so... Um, incredibly inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement from here in Los Angeles, for example, to be the ones to really put city budgets on blast, you know, whether it has to do with policing or not, but just put them into the limelight when many folks were just not talking about that. So talking about that solidarity that, you know, that you're talking, the intersectionality, like BLM really is showing the way that, hey, when you talk about redirecting funds from the police you're also talking about a whole host of other services and and areas and rights that that we deserve so uh yes well barbara this has been a wonky and hard not wonky politically but wonky technologically way to get you on this show <laughs> and i'm sorry that it's been weird but we will i will have you back please anytime you want to sound off on anything you get on the habituation room. There's always a spot for you, and hopefully, it won't be as as strange next time. And thank you so much. Uh, and thanks to you and to NATO for being such good co-conspirators. I appreciate it. <laughs> yes, legend, no big deal. What a hero! Thank you so much to Becca, the producer, for throwing that uh, image of Barbara up there so we could see her. And I'm so sorry if y'all had a hard time listening. We will definitely get her back and probably just ask her the same questions over and over again. Um, she's gonna be a BFF of the show. You guys, we got one more segment. It's gonna we're gonna make it real short. NATO and I giving you our draft picks for a Biden administration. This is Dream Admin. The rumor mill is swirling. Biden's transition team, Biden's admin picks. Who's it going to be? Who, who's it not going to be? Who's, who was down with child separation? Who was not? Um, we know a few things. Ron Klain is going to be the chief of staff. Uh, he was chief of staff to Biden under Obama. Apparently he's not evil. Cool. The Klain machine. Ooh, Klain Machine. Klain <laughs> <laughs> Machine back in power. Hell yeah. Um, I, I, we need to tweet at him, Klain Machine. Um, the, uh, yes, a pick from, for a top immigration advisor to be part of the transition team. She doesn't have a permanent role, but Cecilia Munoz, who essentially defended the child separation policy that was happening under Obama, um, in terms of child separation when it came to immigration and at the border, it wasn't as egregious as the Trump administration made it, obviously, uh, but it was still existing. Family detention was a big thing under Obama, too. So, you know, there was family detention. There was child separation. 
So that's a no bueno. Um, but we got 15 posts to fill, y'all. Who do you want to see? Agriculture, commerce, defense, education, energy, health and human services. Let's go. Uh, NATO, start with any of them. Yeah. So here's 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 my Biden cabinet. You ready for me to run it down? All uh, in one? Okay. I'll do it all in one. Treasury, gritty. Secretary Dude. of State, gritty. gritty. <laughs> Secretary of Energy, gritty. Secretary of Labor. Oh, NATO froze, but I feel like he was going to say gritty, but maybe it was Bernie Sanders. For my, for me, it was Bernie Sanders for a Secretary of Labor. Um, also, NATO was on some bullshit with the gritty thing anyway, so I've actually got real picks. So... Commerce Secretary, Economist Stephanie Kelton. She doesn't believe in gross uh, gross domestic product and all that BS when it comes to the economy. She looks at like real wages and quality of life. She was Bernie's economic advisor. She's dope. Make her Secretary of Commerce. Defense has to be Muslim. Absolutely. So Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib, I prefer Ilhan Omar. She should be the Secretary of Defense. Uh, I only trust Muslims when it comes to our foreign policy because we've spent the last 20 years invading Muslim-majority countries. So that's why. NATO, do we have you back? I'm back, yeah. Okay, great. You want to keep going? I was at Defense Secretary. Yeah, so I had uh, Gritty for Treasury, Gritty for State, Gritty for Energy, Labor, any El Salvadoran grandmother. Um, <laughs> uh Education, gritty, uh, housing and urban development, gritty, Secretary of Defense, Amilcar Cabral, uh, uh, commerce, gritty, HHS, gritty, Department of Justice, an Australian drag queen who also works on the docks. Uh, <laughs> I, I had Treasury Ilhan Omar. Um, uh, partly it's just like, you know, Republicans spent all those years being like, Obama's a African Muslim socialist. And then God was like, motherfuckers, I've got a real one. And it's a lady, and she's amazing. Uh, and then finally, agriculture, gritty again. Cool. So, uh, gritty's got to be in look, gritty's got a fam. There's like, you know, there's hella, 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 there's, hella gritty. There's, there's grit high. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, mine, agriculture is any Lakota elder. Just, yeah, there you go. Just any native elder, put them there. Maybe Lakota doesn't matter. Um, Education, my brother, he's a middle school teacher in Oakland. Yes, he's got more experience than Betsy DeVos, and he's got way more of a, he's actually got a heart. Um, energy, Marianne Williamson, because it's all about that crystals, baby. So you all of our energy is just going to come from rose quartz and. Uh, <laughs> it's hella citrate. renewable. Super renewable. Um, homeland security, not necessary because I will dissolve it uh, under a not abided administration. But, you know, we're dreaming. It's dream admin. Yeah. Uh, health and human services. Paul Hollywood from the Great British Baking Show. Mm. I just feel like there'd be a lot of cake and steely eyed stares. It's just raw sexual uh, pot belly energy. Your healthcare is a trifle. <laughs> yes. Um, interior, Greg Pallast. I feel oh. like he would just oversee, I don't know, elections or whatever the fuck the interior does. I don't know. Um, Justice Department, Lucy McBath, who's currently a representative. Her son was killed by a nutjob racist. Uh, and 
she knows all about uh, being the mother of gun violence. That either her or Breonna Taylor's mom, not really sure. Secretary of State Noor Erkat, Palestinian human rights attorney. She's amazing. Also, anyone who deals with the international world must be Muslim in my administration. Um, transportation, Mr. Moran, my middle school bus driver. That dude was great. He got me home every day after school. Thank you, Mr. Moran. I didn't realize you had legs until one time I saw you stand up and I was like, oh shit, you're more than just a torso driving a bus. Uh, you're dope. Um, let's see. Treasury, whoever writes the wiki how to save money. I, that, I don't know who that person is and who got paid 20 bucks to write the wiki how on how to save money, but you're probably better at saving money than this country and government right now. <laughs> um, Veterans Affairs, last one. The head of About Face, which is a formerly Iraq Veterans Against the War. Her name is Brittany Ramos de Barros, and uh, she's a dope. Uh, Roll ours, girl. What? Roll, the, roll those R's. De Barros. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for all of your comments and your super chats. Remember to tip TBR-Live, TBR-Live on Cash App. Thank you to Becca Rue for our producer. Um, Nato, where can people find you? Uh, at Nato Green on Twitter, Mr. Nato Green on Instagram. Uh, check out my album, The Whiteness Album, and my first album, The Nato Green Party. Uh, my label just put them up on Bandcamp so that people can support artists with actual money instead of like fractions of a penny on Spotify streaming revenue. So right. uh, get his album. It's fucking fire. Bandcamp. So he gets more money. Artists are struggling. Comics are struggling. What the fuck? Our whole industry is dying. Not that it wasn't precarious to begin with. Take care, my friend. And thank you to all of you. And remember, we did it. We voted. We're working every single day. We continue the struggle. We we get knocked down, but we get up again. You're never going to get me down. Or something like that. Uh, shout out to Chumbawamba. I feel like you guys are COVID deniers, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, and remember, this is the trash that we still have yet to get rid of. Who's denying and not uh, not conceding but almost conceding in fun little moments like this. And hundreds of thousands of jobs every single day. Ideally, we won't go to a lockdown. I will not go. This administration will not be going to a lockdown. Hopefully, the, the uh, whatever happens in the future, who knows which administration it will be. I guess time will tell. But uh, I can tell you, this administration will not go to a lockdown. There won't be necessity. Lockdowns cost lives. And they cost a lot of problems. Ooh, he almost said the Biden administration. He knows he lost. You got one foot in the big boy pants, buddy. Just pull them up. Pull up the big boy pants, baby. And remember, don't just bitch about it. Be about it. Bye.